Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews, chapter 10. We'll be beginning our verse this morning is verse 22. If you're wondering how we're going to fill up 40 minutes with just one verse, well, then you haven't been here very long, have you? So. There's a lot to be said in this section. A lot to be said. Let me read this again for you so that we have some context here for this verse. Beginning in verse 19. Remember this section, verse 19 to 25, is all one thought. It's meant to be an encouragement. It's meant to encourage those who have had a profession of faith to come in, to to come forward, to not abandon their profession of faith, but go all the way in, all the way in, and seek God's face. Let me read this again for you. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In 1976, Francis Schaeffer wrote a significant book titled, How Should We Then Live? The purpose of that book was to show how ideas had been embraced and discarded and how those ideas that had embraced and discarded had shaped the thought in Western civilization. He writes, what people are in their thought world determines how they act. The results of their thoughts flow through their fingers and their tongues into the external world. The same is true of Michelangelo's chisel as it is true of a dictator's sword. That's exactly how the New Testament presents matters as well. The reason so much of the Bible is devoted to doctrine or the things we must know and believe is that the consequences of those truths shape how we live. It's not just gathering up knowledge in our head. What we think determines what we do. Francis Schaeffer's conclusion in this book was that since the truths that we believe shape our actions then as believers, our lives should match the biblical truths that we are professing. That's something the author of Hebrews believes as well. He just spent ten chapters. We know. Ten chapters of doctrine. And now he says, it's time to act. What you believe should then determine how you live, what actions that you take. Now you'll remember from last week that the author of Hebrews knows there are many sitting in the congregation who have professed Christ but are not yet all in. And he wants them to know that it's decision time. It was time to quit straddling the fence. 
They had come to a fork in the road. They needed to turn to the left or to the right. And every week they were coming to church. Every week they were listening to the gospel message. They were sitting under New Covenant preaching. Some had even made professions of faith, but they were not all in. Verses 19 to 25, again, are an encouragement to those who are on the fence about their profession of their faith, but not yet all in. And he wants to encourage them to seize the benefits of what it means to have true and enduring faith. He wants to say, this is what it looks like when your thoughts go into action. When you truly believe something, this is, these are the marks that show and he also wants to say, they're all there for you. You just need only come in. My friends, it's not enough to come to church and sit under the gospel message every week. It's not enough to simply know about Jesus. It's not enough to come to church and be friendly or to engage, to engage in fellowship with other believers. It's not enough to sit under the old covenant preaching, or solid new covenant preaching, and be well taught. And to feel enlightened. And to feel conviction about your sin. You must be all in. The Bible tells us you must receive him and believe upon his name. What does that mean? Believing upon his name means that you believe who he is. And you believe that what he said is true. That his promises are true. That Jesus Christ is indeed God. The second person in the Trinity, that he put on human flesh, that he lived a sinless life and then died on a cross, was buried and rose again on the third day, and that he will return again. My friends, if you believe that, that's what it means to receive him and believe upon his name. It's not just a knowledge about God it is belief in who he is and what he has said is true. And so that's what the author of Hebrews is speaking to this morning. Verse 19, again, we have confidence to in Christ to enter the holy place. He says, therefore, based on all that doctrine that we've been covering, specifically all that we just covered from chapter 7, verse 1, until chapter 10, verse 18, because that's the last section where he's talking about Christ's priesthood. Remember the Melchizedekian priesthood and all these better than the priest, better sacrifice, all of that. Based on all of that, therefore, after all of that instruction, after all of that doctrine about Jesus, why he's better than anything under the law, therefore, brethren, and remember, brethren is not necessarily Christian brethren, but Jewish brethren, as it often is here in the book of Hebrews, now comes the first characteristic of somebody is, who is all in. Therefore, brethren, we have confidence. That word confidence you're going to hear a lot more about in chapter 11. It means assured faith, enduring faith. Confidence is one of the defining characteristics of true saving faith. You would never commit your life to something or someone you do not have confidence in. And the same is true in salvation. You would never commit your life to Jesus unless you truly believe he is who he says he is 
And he has done and will do what he says he has done and will do. Now his argument follows then. Therefore, brethren, since you have this confidence in who Jesus is, in what he has accomplished, in the sufficiency of his sacrifice, it's time to act. It's time to come all the way in. He wants them to have confidence. Confidence to do what? Verse 19 tells us, to enter the holy place. What does he mean by holy place? He's referring to the heavenly tabernacle of Christ. We've already walked through that here in chapter 9. In the Old Testament, again, only the high priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year and only after sacrificing for his own sins and then going in and sprinkling blood on the altar for the sins of the people one time a year. And the high priest would enter with fear and trembling because he knew that God was pure holiness and that God was just. However, the author of Hebrews does not tell his readers to fear, but invites them to go in with confidence. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 4, boldness. Boldness. He's not talking about confidence in ourselves. He's not talking about confidence in our moral perfection. He's not talking about confidence in us in any way. He's talking about confidence in Christ, who he is and what he has done. Again, this is one of the benefits of a true believer, one that has committed his life to Christ, is all in. If you're not all in, you do not have access to God like that. You cannot stroll into God's presence on your own terms and demand that God God respond to you because, after all, I am me and I am here. You may say all the right things. You may know all the lingo. You may even have a bunch of Jesus gear in your closet. But you cannot just stroll into the presence of God on your own terms. Matthew 7. I remind you again, there are many people who will say, Lord, Lord, we've done many wonderful works in your name. We've we've cast out devils. We've done miracles. And we want now to come into your kingdom. And remember what he says. Depart from me. I never knew you not know of you. He's he's omniscient. He knows all things. He means, I've never had a relationship with you. I don't know you like I know my children. I know about you, of course. But I don't know you like I know my children. There's only one way into the presence of God, my friends, and that's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But since you have confidence in the atoning work of the shed blood of Jesus... You now have access into the Holy of Holies. You realize that when you pray, you are in the throne room of God. You are in the Holy of Holies, spiritually, in the presence of God. Seated at God the Father's right hand is God the Son, interceding for you in your prayers. Again, this is for those who are confident, those who believe, those who are all in. If you're not all in, you don't have that kind of access to God. Verse 20 tells us we have confidence that Christ inaugurated us through the veil. That word new, I told you, is a very rare word. It means freshly slaughtered. It's referring to the crucifixion. 
Then he says there's a living way, right? We have confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies by a freshly slaughtered and living way. The living way refers to the resurrection. Note that it's a living way, which means the sacrifice that was given is alive. He is alive. He has risen. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And so it's a living way because the sacrifice, Jesus, is alive through the resurrection. Notice also that Jesus inaugurated it, inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. The veil is in reference to the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The veil shut God in and it shut man out, for no man could enter into the direct presence of God in the old covenant. Only the high priest once a year. The veil is symbolic of Christ's flesh or his sinless human body. And Christ's sacrificial death opened up that access into the very presence of God. Direct access to God for all true believers was now available. And they were to come. They were to come into God's presence now. If they had assured faith, if they truly believed, if they had went past just making a profession with their mouth and recognition with God in their head, but truly believed... God is commanding them to come in. Come in now. Verse 21, we have confidence in our great high priest. Again, that word great is a word that's connected to the word sovereign. And so it's on the basis of this that there's a new way to have access to God that has been opened up by the sacrifice of Christ, the death and the resurrection. We can go in now with confidence because of what Jesus has accomplished through his new and living way. And Christ goes in with us and he takes a place there and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he mediates for us. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, based on all of that, draw near. Draw near. Come on in. It's open. Come to Christ. You can come into his presence now, not on your merit, on his. Not on what you've done, not on the work that you've done, but on the work that he has accomplished on your behalf. And then he says, here's how you're going to come in. But you can't just come up to the gate. You must come all the way in. You must be all in by faith. So point number one. Being all in commands us to draw near to God. Being all in commands us to draw near to God. Look at that, verse 22, the first part of that. Let us draw near. The idea here is that we don't stay at a distance from Christ. We don't just stand there with our toes at the very edge of the narrow gate, but we just won't take that step over the line. Some people just stand there at the narrow gate, but they never go in. They never walk through the narrow gate. They are indeed confident that the narrow gate is the correct gate to go in. They would agree. They are indeed confident that the narrow gate is open to them. 
They are indeed confident as they see others walk through that gate. They are confident that those who walk through are on the narrow path to heaven. They've inched as close as possible to enter the gate as they can, but they never draw near, as the text commands us to do. Oh, sure, they've taken some steps to get there. They've inched as close as humanly possible to the gate as they can. You never seen how a sprinter lines up to run a sprint, how they kind of put their fingers, it's just it's like, it's like every millimeter. They can't go over the line, but they push just as close as they can. What a startling contrast that is to the people, to what God's people are told in the Old Testament. Do you remember that? Remember when we talked about access to God earlier? Some of you may remember after God's people had been delivered from Egypt and when they had gathered around the mountain upon which God was going to reveal himself and his commandments to Moses, the people were instructed in no certain terms that they were not to draw near to God. But that was holy ground. Matter of fact, if you set foot on that mountain, what would happen? You would die. He said, even keep your animals away from that, but this is holy ground. Do not draw near. They weren't even to touch the mountain, much less attempt to go in it. Why? Because for God's people to attempt to come near to God in that way would have meant certain death. Why is that? Because their sins were not atoned for. They were not reconciled to God. So it was for their own good that they were told to keep their distance until the one came who could and would forever and fully address their sin and its payment. That's one of the abiding messages for God's people in the Old Testament. Keep away. You Don't come in here unless your sins have been atoned for. Not, you could just stroll into the presence of God. Not so with the new covenant in Christ. Now the command is the complete opposite. Draw near. The way is open. And it's important here to always remember the manner in which these things first came about. First, Christ accomplishes his priestly work. Second, you are commanded to draw near. Not the other way around. My friends, we are commanded to draw near because of what Christ has fully accomplished. There's nothing left in order Uh, to be done in order to bring us into fellowship with God. There's no other barrier that must be taken down. Christ did it all, and as a result, we are called to do the only thing that's left to do when the barriers are down, and that's draw near. Draw near to him. Beloved, there are some here today who have come as close as you can get to going into that narrow gate, and yet they will not go all the way in. If that describes you today, I urge you to take that step of faith and go all the way in. Enjoy all of his benefits. So if you're going to take that step, you cannot just come up to the edge. You cannot just take some steps toward Christ. You must go all the way in. You must draw near. You must go all in by faith. What does that look like? Verse 22, the second part, part B. Let us draw near how? With a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. A sincere heart means a true heart. It refers to a heart without divided loyalties. A true heart means true in God's sight. 
Not in our sight. It means there's no hypocrisy. There's no putting on a good front for others, but hiding sin in our hearts. It means no ulterior motives, no superficiality. This is not simply trying to get a get-out-of-judgment-free card, but rather you have enduring faith in who Christ is and what he has done. This is not trying to keep one foot in the world and another on the path of righteousness in Christ. It means you come to God with a whole heart, with a full commitment to Christ. You must be all in. Christians, we live to please God who examines our heart, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 2. Every thought, every motive must be taken captive to the obedience in Christ. That does not mean that believers are beyond temptation or sin, but rather that although we were formerly enslaved to sin, we now have become obedient to God. How? From the heart. That doesn't mean sinless perfection, but rather that the scope of our lives are growth and godliness, not a life of bondage to sin. Christianity is not just a matter of outward conformity to moral standards. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews has been saying now for 10 chapters. He said, listen, the law served its purpose. And that was to show you, you cannot have access to God because of your sinfulness. Because what it requires for you to come into the very presence of God, to be reconciled with God is you must be perfect. You must be complete in Christ. You must have a relationship with him. You cannot do that on your own. The blood and bulls and goats can never atone for sin. And so that wasn't their purpose. They were not supposed to atone for your sin. They were supposed to show you how far short you are from the presence of My friends, this requires that we judge and confess our sin at the heart level. It's easy to fake others out about how spiritual we are, but if our hearts are not sincere before God, we're only deceiving ourselves, are we not? Because God doesn't judge the things on the outside. He judges the things of the heart. John Owen put it this way, without the sincerity of heart, there could be neither boldness nor confidence in our access to God. Secondly, because of what Christ has done, it is to be with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Faith in Christ affects you from the inside out. Your mind and heart are captured by the gospel and, and gives way to worship and drawing near to God, to be in his presence. It's a genuineness of faith in Christ instead of the tendency to turn away from Christ that he's warned about in chapter 6, and he will again here in chapter 10. The author of Hebrews will devote the entirety of chapter 11 to just this theme, faith. Faith rests on the promises of God. Faith is both God's gift and our responsibility. We are saved through faith, and we are to walk by faith. Our faith is not a mindless, blind leap. In the dark, faith rests upon the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is what the author has been talking about this entire book. 
The better we know him as revealed in his word, the more we will trust him. The more we trust him, the more we will be confident to act upon that faith and be all in. The full assurance of faith explains what he means by a sincere heart. It is a heart anchored upon the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. It means that you know in your heart without any reservation the truth of the gospel and that Jesus is not some way or a way, but the only way. Full insurance implies a certainty that you have made certain of the Lord's calling. As Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, it demands that you're not wavering or tottering in your faith but falling and trying to fall back upon man-centered means of approaching God. God does not accept our approach to him if we attempt to do so by means of self-perceived virtues or accomplishments. You cannot earn your way to God. He does not hear us or accept our worship because of our performance. He does those things because of our faith in what his son has done. That's it. So the writer is reminding us that this must be the disposition of our heart, one that is settled upon Jesus Christ as the only way to have fellowship with God. Do you see this? Do you see that God has bid you to draw near to him, but only through your faith in the person and work of his son? My friends, let me add this as well. God is not going to meet you halfway. You're going to have to come all the way in. You'll have to be all the way in. He went all the way for you. He carried the cross all the way to Calvary. He finished all the way the things that the Father had asked him to do. You too, beloved, must go all the way through the narrow gate. You must be all in by faith. You must take that final step in saving faith. What does saving faith look like? John Patton was a missionary and he was trying to find a word for faith and the natives didn't have a word for faith. And one day a native came into his house who he had been working with and he was exhausted. He just kind of flopped himself into the chair. And Patton said to him, what's the word for what you just did there? And the man told him and he said, that's the word he put in the New Testament for the word faith. To just drop your whole weight on it and nothing else. That's faith. That's real faith. That's saving faith. Some of our senior saints here may remember a name, a man named Blondin or Blondini, who used to to do that tightrope thing across the Niagara Falls. I probably have his name wrong. Forgive me. And he had a habit of wanting to carry somebody on his shoulders when he walked across, right? He'd walk across back and forth, and then he'd have one of his own group he'd take with him, and then he'd ask for volunteers, Right? He had a terrible time getting anybody to volunteer. There'd be a lot of people say, oh, yeah, I believe you. Oh, I believe you can do it. I believe you two can do it. I'm not going to do it. They weren't willing to commit themselves to that. But that's what it takes in saving faith. You have to be able to, to do that. You have to go all the way in. What would be the results if you were to commit and be all in? Look at... Verse 22, again, the last part, part C. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. First, 
Point number three, being all in results in a clean heart and a pure conscience. Being all in results in a clean heart and a pure conscience. First, first result would we would have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. For this and the following expression, he's really, this is Old Testament sacrificial language. This is Old Testament priestly language here. It's a picture of the Old Testament priests who were consecrated for their office by being washed with water and sprinkled with blood in Exodus 29. The author's probably referring to the animal of the, of the ritual of the red heifer, where the ritual sprinkled cleaning cleansed the outside of the man so that he was not ceremonially defiled. But the blood of Christ cleanses the inner man, not the outer man. The blood of Christ cleanses the conscience from dead work so that we may serve a living God. So you come all the way in by faith, and the result is you have a clean heart. And once you're all in by faith, you come with a conscience which realizes you have been declared not guilty by God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Come with a conscience that understands that justification by grace through faith, you know what that means. Come with a conscience that knows what it means that God has pronounced over you and over all your sins. Therefore, there is no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it take to have a good conscience? Well, if we could go through life without ever breaking one of God's laws, you probably have nothing to ever feel guilty about. I don't know anybody that's like that, but only Jesus Christ could confidently ask, which of you convicts me of sin and have no fear that somebody was going to step forward and go, yeah, I would, I would. There'd be a line for me. Right? Oh, I, I know. I'll Yet the apostle Peter told his readers to commit their hearts to the Lord God, having a good conscience. Paul encouraged Timothy to wage a good warfare, having faith in a good conscience. On one occasion, when brought before the religious leaders who didn't like what he's saying, Paul even asserted, he asserted, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. How is it possible for you to have a good conscience? The New Testament book of Hebrews presents Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death as your only hope of achieving it. Through faith in him, your heart can be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And his blood can cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The fourth description here. Our bodies washed with pure water. There's a lot of controversy about this. Is this referring to baptism? I believe that this is referring to a spiritual baptism. That the sprinkling, clean, and the washing are perfect participles in Greek, which means it's a past action, something that happened before with continued results. At the moment of salvation, both of those cleansings took place at salvation, but they have an ongoing effect for those who are truly believers, those who are all in. Baptism, remember, pictures outwardly what God did inwardly, right? It's a manifestation of the transformation that took place inside. He cleansed our hearts by faith. 
Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3.21. Let's just look at that real close, real closely, real quickly. 1 Peter 3.21. Remember Peter says here, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. He just got done talking about Noah, right? Talking about Noah here. He kept waiting during the construction of the ark, in which a few, the eight people, were brought safely through the water. And he says in verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. But he's not talking about water baptism. And to be absolutely clear, he defines it for them. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but what? An appeal to God for a good conscience. How do you have that appeal to God for a good conscience? It tells you in your verse, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Taken together, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, point to that inward purity that manifests itself in outward behavior. Both stem from salvation. If we do not have a clean conscience, or if we are aware of sins in our conduct, we will not draw near to God. We will not do it. We must confess and forsake our sins so that we can draw near. That's what it looks like. When you come all the way in, your hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. My friends, we learn from this that the gospel is to be lived It's not simply a doctrine to discuss, but a reality that we are to live in every day. The writer here demonstrates this, that since Christ is sufficient as both our sacrifice and our mediator, you can go on to a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But you must be all in by faith. God commands you to draw near Draw near to him by faith. He commands you to draw near to him with a sincere heart in the full assurance of faith. The results are a clean heart and a pure conscience. My friends, if you're here today and you've never done that, maybe you're the one that I was talking about earlier, or you're part of one. Or you've gotten your toes about as close to that line as you possibly can. You know all about Jesus. You got all the head knowledge. You can even quote a few verses. You might have some Jesus gear in your closet. You might have a fish sticker on your bumper. But you've never stepped all the way in. You've never done it. You know about him. You don't know him. He knows about you. But he doesn't know you. I pray today would be the day that you would come. I pray today would be the day you'd go all in. You don't have to walk an aisle. But you do need to repent of your sin. Cry out to God. Ask for forgiveness. Repent of your sin. Confess your sin. And trust in Jesus Christ in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's what it means to go all in. 
Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 11, Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Drawing near to God, my friends, requires you. It requires faith. It requires sincere faith. It requires the full assurance of your faith. Now, maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, that's wonderful. Pastor keeps talking evangelistically about those who are not in, those not in, but I'm in. What does that mean to me? What does verse 22 mean to me? How do I draw near to God? How do you do that in practical terms if you already have trusted Christ? If you're already all in? Let me just share with this you with this. And I'm putting this at the end because it's not the focus of our passage, but it does still apply for believers. Hebrews 4 tells us, how do you draw near? With confidence, boldly. Come boldly before the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace. When? In your time of need. When is your time of need? Every day. Every day is your time of need. Consider what a great privilege you have received. Think about all of those in the Old Testament and what they would give to have access to the throne room of God. Think of all those Old Testament saints. They were said, stay away, don't come in, only the high priest, just once a year. And in the new covenant, Christ says, come in, all of you. All of you. Come in. Draw near. My friends, are you taking full of full advantage of your access to God? Does it show up in your prayer life? When you're praying, do you realize you're in the throne room of God? Do you relish the time you get to spend with God in his very throne room? Do you realize that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you? advocating for you? Do you picture that in your head when you're praying? Do you take every opportunity to pray or is it just one more thing you do right after you finish our daily bread for the day? Do you seek God's face in all things throughout the day? Not just a checklist of things to do. And how about worship? Do you draw near to him in worship? Or is your head and your heart so cluttered with the things to do today, the things you need to do after the service, the things you've got to get done this week, how the kids are acting, how the, grandparents, how the grandkids are acting, how the grandparents are acting. We're so easily distracted. Remember what Jesus told the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, you must worship me how? In spirit and in truth. He's talking about pure worship. He's talking about coming into the presence of God. My friends, if you're here and you've already trusted Christ, oh, I hope you relish that. I hope you relish this time we get to spend together. United, all of us, as a body of believers, worshiping our Savior. What a wonderful privilege that is. We are blessed in 
indeed to have that. All right, my friends, let's close in prayer here. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the truth of your text. Lord, your word continues to challenge us today. We're told to draw near, not based on our own merits, but on the merits and the work and the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray again for any in our midst who do not know you. I pray, Lord, you would break the hardness around their heart and draw them to yourself. And then, Lord, they would surrender all to you. That they would know you. And you would know them. Lord, I especially pray for any in our midst who have professed Christ but have not went all the way in. They're at the narrow gate, but they have not gone in. Lord, your word tells us that's a dangerous place to be because we presume upon your grace every day we do that. Lastly, Lord, I pray for all those who are already all in. I pray, Lord, we would treasure the blessing and the privilege we have to be reconciled with you through Christ. And that that would demonstrate itself in the, the way that we read our Bibles, the way that we spend time in prayer, eagerly anticipating our time with you, and the way that we worship you with a true heart, full assurance of faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.